Well, many of you have been here the whole time for all nine weeks of this nine-week series. Many of you maybe have had your last family group meeting already uh, because some groups wrapped up early and some groups wrapped last week, and I know a few are going to meet, maybe have some Christmas parties yet, but um, it's been a great study together. You know, we just sang that song, Be Thou My Vision, that at the end of the day, whenever I'll trip you down and everything else is off the table, we proclaim nothing but Jesus Christ. Nothing but Jesus Christ. That's our gospel to the world. And this whole series, we've been talking about that very thing, about how that is the, the beginning and the end of what we do as a church family. That's what we're called to do here. And for those of you who've been here every week, you know every week I've been asking the same questions repeatedly. I keep asking you, what is the gospel? I keep asking you, where do you find it in Scripture? How do you articulate that? Do you believe that? But this week, we're not going to do that. We're just going to move right on into the text today. I pray, though, that through this process you have learned the gospel is found in 1 Corinthians, right? Chapter 15. It's found in the whole Bible, but there's a place right there. Romans 2. There's a place right there. 1 Corinthians 1. There's a place right there where we can learn some real deep truths about what the gospel is and what it means in our lives, why it matters. But today I want to get right into the lesson because we're going to be kind of wrapping up the series and we're going to just be moving on. So today I, I kind of want to start by asking a question for you, and I'm not sure how you, you experienced Thanksgiving. I hope you had a great one. I hope, I hope it was, I talked to a friend of mine who said they, they just get overwhelmed around the table. I remember sitting at my wife's grandfather's house whenever we were just dating. And I was one of those kids that came in and just was overwhelmed by the family. Like there were so many people there in the room. The tables wouldn't even hold everybody. There were just tables and tables and tables lined up. I had to be 40 people there. And there was a time right before when we all sat down, right before we began to eat, that her grandfather just kind of put his head down. I mean, kind of just, just had this look. And I remember thinking, as a young man who was dating this beautiful woman, man, I want that. I want to end up at the head of a table with all my family gathered there. What a glorious sight. He didn't say much about it, but you, there was just something instructive in it for me as a young man, that it was something to aspire to. So we had Thanksgiving at our house, and it was kind of small, just my folks and um, some a close friend. And we sat around the table, and I, and I thought, you know, what's the beginning of it? But for many people, Thanksgiving isn't always that great time. You don't get overwhelmed with thanks. You don't sit there at the table and think, boy, how blessed we are. It might be a time of, I don't know, conflict or issues, family issues come up, you know. Uh, things you don't want to talk about maybe come up at the table. And, and that's all part of living together. But I was wondering as I thought about those things, and where we're at in the series, I wanted to ask you a question this morning. Well, how does the word conflict strike you? Like, I'm sure if you had a great Thanksgiving, you might think, man, it was great because there was no fighting, <laughs> you know? There was no conflict at all. It was, we were just, it was peaceful, you know, and that's not a bad thing. Is conflict ever a good thing? For those who are in family groups this week, you know we studied this very issue. And they ask a question, who's an attacker and who's a retreater, I think, were the two questions. Uh, who's a submitter? Who's an attacker? And we kind of talked through, and boy, you could just tell on both sides, you know, there was a lot of righteousness. <laughs> right? <laughs> the attackers were like, yeah, we're attackers, because we need to be. 
and, and the submissive ones weren't saying anything, but they were thinking, yeah, I'm the peacemaker here. It, it brought the question, is conflict ever a good thing? I think for many of us, when you say the word conflict, you think bad. When you think of the word fight, you think it's bad. Always bad. Always bad. As a matter of fact, you, you recall, and our group did, in, in Scripture, Jesus himself says, blessed are the peacemakers, right? It's in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. And our group got into that and talked about, you know, it's the people who make peace that are really godly. Peace at all costs. And, and many of those who were humble and submitting, rightfully so, we kind of they claim that. I'm the peacemaker in this relationship. But we began to find in our time together, and I pray the word will reveal this today, that sometimes we take a counterfeit peace for the real thing. Sometimes we take cheap and easy peace, which is just really denial for the real thing. As I was praying and studying and preparing this morning, one of the things that struck me about the word peacemaker that we find in the Gospels, spoken by our, our Savior Jesus, is that there was another use of the word peacemaker that many of us are familiar with. There's this classic gun called the Colt Peacemaker. Have you heard of that before? The Colt Peacemaker? And I thought, now how could you call a gun a peacemaker? That's crazy. That's crazy talk. Who, who does that? So I went and looked it up, you see, and it was made in 1873. It's actually called, called the Colt Single Action Army, SAA. Some people call it the peacemaker in the Wild West. Because when you're wearing one, there was some peace. Especially when the sheriff had it on, right? Sheriff, keep the peace. Got it. Got my peacemaker right here. And there was peace from that. What's really even more interesting to me is that the Colt, I gotta get this right, single action army weapon was actually the next stage of something called a dueling weapon. A dueling weapon. I thought, well, what's that? So I went and looked it up. Dueling weapons, as you may already know, was actually a practice for settling disputes in France and then later in the United States. These guys would actually go out and have a specially made uh, set of guns. Beautiful, in a beautiful case, maybe like in their dining room. Maybe in their, in their um, what do you call it, the, the foyer, the place you receive people, your study. And they would keep them in this nice glass case, and you could just see them. They were engraved, they were polished, they were exactly the same. And if there was a dispute bad enough, if there was something that you could not agree on, you would say, let's duel. You've heard this before, right? So the Colt Peacemaker is an extension of this dueling gun. I don't know about you, but that's a foreign concept to me. Is there ever something in your life that is so important, there, there's a disagreement that's so deep that you would actually go to the peacemakers? Thanksgiving dinner, everybody's there having a good time. You get in a dispute, you can't, you can't agree. And I'm not talking about flipping disputes because these things were real. You know they shot a 45 caliber slug? That's crazy. Flintlock. You know what I can imagine happening a lot of times? Is the first guy that says, you know, do you really want to take this outside? I would say, no, not really. I was just having fun. But you know, some people did. Some people would say, yeah. I believe so strongly in this 
that we're going to work it out. And they would find peace. There's all kinds of more stuff of that, which was crazy. It just goes further and further down. But this idea that that's how they would settle disputes. Have you ever had a disagreement with someone that was so deep you had to confront them, even if it meant a fight? I'm not sure many of us do. So here's the other hook into the scripture this morning. I remember, I, you know, I was raised by a single mom, as many of you guys know already. And she would tell me things like, walk a mile around to fight. She loved the passage where Jesus said, turn the other cheek, Corey. That was her favorite thing. If they slap you once, turn the other cheek. I got to tell you, as a young man, you get tired of that. You get tired of walking a mile around the fight. Sometimes you walk right to the fight, you know. But there was this circle of friends that we had, and I had a pretty tight circle of friends, and we were really, really good friends. But there were some people that I always wanted to be friends with. I always really wanted, I really wanted to kind of be inside with them, you know, be on the inside. And there was this one particular day, this one friend, and I'm not going to name him, but I remember so clearly, there was this kid who I was kind of was on the outside with him, and I had my circle of friends, but I really liked him, got to hang out with him sometimes and ride bikes with him sometimes. And this one day, he came to my house, and he wanted to hang out. Couldn't believe it. And we hung out, we had a great day together. And we were friends. Real friends. It meant so much to me. Then maybe like uh, it happened a few more times, and a few weeks later, we were at a library. And I don't want why well, I remember this because I didn't go to the library a lot, by the way, before you say it, I did, <laughs> you know. But but I was there with them in the library, and we were having the fun out. We were messing around. I don't know what you're even doing that day. And uh, some of the, the the other kids came in, his other circle of friends, and I thought, this is my day, you know, this is my day. And they walked over, and they said, what are you doing here? And he totally blew me off. Oh, I'm just hanging out. Here by yourself? Yeah, here by myself. Oh. See, it wasn't genuine. It wasn't real. As much as I thought it was. And that day, I would have probably challenged him to a duel. It really hurts when we think things are one way or they're not. And today I'm going to talk from the scriptures about what this looks like in our lives and why it really matters that we believe and do what we say we believe. So I'm going to actually go ahead and uh, get, you, get you to open your Bibles up. If you brought a Bible today, uh, I'd invite you to open it to Galatians chapter 2. Verses 11 through 14. It's a little bit set of scripture here. If you didn't bring one, we have them on the, uh, the, the chairs there, page 808 in our Bibles. And we're just going to read this text together about a famous conflict in the church, and we're going to see what the Lord has to give us in the text today. This is what it says. It says, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. 
When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Let's pray together. Father God, today as we come into your house, come before you today, standing here, we ask that you would open your word to our minds. We, we ask, just verbally ask you that your spirit would be dwelling richly here among us, continually instructing us and teaching us, challenging us and growing us. We pray that today your word would be alive to us, that we would see, hear, know the truth of the gospel. We know that Christ, our Savior, paid a high price for this gospel. I pray that today we honor it, that we grow in it, and we give thanks for it. We love you and thank you. Open our minds, open our hearts, open our lives to your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's this little text about a conflict in the early church. And you might think this is not a big deal. And even when we studied in our group, we said, eh, you know, it's a little bitty text. It's just a little part of the whole scripture. What does it have to say to us? And so I've been digging into that this week. But I want to start by actually giving a little backstory here on what this text actually is relating to. The first things we read there, it says, when Peter came to Antioch, right? You need a little background on, on this history between Peter and Paul. You know, if you've been here for a few weeks, that we keep saying that the first thing that, that Paul says, I gave to the church at Corinth as a first importance, is that Jesus died for your sins, that he was buried. He was raised on the third day according to scriptures. And he appeared to the disciples and to a whole bunch of people. And the last thing that Paul says is, and even appeared to us, even appeared to me, that I know this Jesus guy. I've seen him. I've felt him. I've followed him. And Paul claims this throughout his whole time. And here when it says, when Peter came to Antioch, there's a whole backstory here that Paul actually relates in the book of Galatians. And it's a backstory of how Paul went at one point to Peter in Jerusalem. You see, Peter didn't get very far from the nest when Jesus ascended into heaven. You'll remember that Peter's the one that Jesus said, this is my rock and I will build my church on it. And so we have this, this uh, picture of Peter as kind of being the home front in Jerusalem. And so before this, Paul tells a story about how he went to Peter to talk to him about his gospel message. Paul went of his own accord to see him, to share in the work that he'd been doing, to share the gospel he'd been preaching. And he went back to the root of it all, to Jerusalem. You'll remember also with me that both Peter and Paul were Jews. They were Jewish by birth. As a matter of fact, Whenever Peter was faithfully following Jesus, whenever Peter was faithfully assembling the first church after Christ ascended into heaven, you'll recall that, right? When Peter was doing those things, Paul was actually persecuting the very church that Peter was building. He was an enemy of the church and an enemy of God. His name was Saul then. And in this way, Saul and Peter had this adversarial relationship but the Lord intervened and completely changed Paul's life. And Paul became what, what later came to be known as 
the apostle to the Gentiles. When Paul went to Jerusalem, he went to explain that I'm called to preach the gospel everywhere else. You can have Jerusalem. I'm preaching to the rest of the world. And so when he went, after 14 years of proclaiming the gospel, he went to Jerusalem to share what he'd been sharing. And he records how there was nothing wrong found with it. That's the backstory. So here's this other place called Antioch. And Antioch is kind of, um, it's like a Gentile haven. It's a place where the church of those who don't belong to Judaism are gathering. It's a big deal. And Peter comes to check it out, to see what's going on. But the second thing that he says here, he says, when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Now, this doesn't sound like a great greeting for the apostle Peter. After going to Jerusalem and making peace and everything being okay and being sent on his way with a blessing to be an apostle to the Gentiles, when Peter comes to the Gentile capital, Paul opposes him to his face. We're going to find out why. Let's read on. Here it is. Verse 12. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. That is, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So here's the picture. Peter comes from Jerusalem to Antioch. And when he shows up, he loves it. He thinks it's a great work of God. He's really excited to be there. And he's eating with the Gentiles. Doesn't sound like a big deal to you and I, but it was a huge deal then, right? So what, I want to get right into, what is the, what is the root sin of Peter here? The root sin is this. It's hypocrisy. He says it later in the text, but we can even read it before then. You see, the problem is that Peter, when he first gets there, everything is fine. Everything is golden. He's so excited about the work the Lord is doing there. He's partaking in the meals. And then suddenly, look what the text says, when certain men came from James, things began to change for Peter. He began to behave differently, to act differently, to um, hedge his bets a little bit. He kind of began the slow stepping away from what he had committed to. This is a big deal to me because this is the last week of gospel-centered life for us. This is the last week we're going to be talking about this particular series. And for many folks in the family groups, it's like, ah, you know, where, what's that conflict about? Where is it rooted in? Do you know hypocrisy is the number one charge against believers? It's the number one thing. If you talk to somebody who's not in the church, doesn't come to the church, doesn't want to be part of it, it's because of hypocrisy amongst us. The same thing that 2,000 years ago Peter was guilty of, this stepping away, this stepping back, this, ah, is exactly what we're charged with today. The charge is leveled. You hypocrites. You know the hard thing about it? The hard thing about it is many times they're right. 
many times we're completely hypocritical. Even more so when we get around each other. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? It's a sin that manifests when we're together more than when we're apart. There's this hypocrisy that others see in us when we gather with those who are like us because we're never sure we can trust each other. We're never sure we can be genuine with each other. And so we began to build these walls, put up these barricades as Peter did, began to step away slowly at first from those who would be considered unclean, living improperly. All of this text, all of these studies for these nine weeks has been about being centered on the good news of Jesus, and Paul shared it. Paul went around recklessly sharing the gospel with those who have no hope. And that's still our call today. We're still not called to the righteous. We're still not called to those who have it together. The gospel is for those who don't yet know Christ. The gospel are for those who are failing in their lives failing in their following of him even. So permit me, if you will, to be myself. Because when I think of hypocrisy, this is what I think of. Now, some of you, maybe very few of you, uh, will be able to read that properly. Uh, this is a little C++ language up here combined with biblical theology, which we hopefully will get some wisdom out of. But to me, hypocrisy is equal to, that's a double equal, doctrine not equaling behavior. That's the definition of hypocrisy. It means that the things that you say you believe, the things that you profess to believe, you don't actually live like you believe it. That's hypocrisy. The Greek word is actually... um. Uh, hypocrisis, hypocrisies, something like that, but it's actually pronounced hypocrisy, just like it is for us now even. In the Middle Ages, it got a little weird. They started changing the word to disassimilation or something. But it's kind of funny. We're back to the root, hypocrisy. It's when your doctrine doesn't equal your behavior. Where does Peter have this bad doctrine? Do you think he just kind of got there and thought, I'll eat with the Gentiles for a while and then stop eating with them? There was a time in Peter's life, and it's found in Acts chapter 10, when Peter was setting himself aside to be holy. He was, he was abstaining from all the sin of the world. And God came to him in a vision, and he lowered a sheet before him, and he said, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter said, no way. I have clean lips. I will never do that. And the sheet went back up. And it came back down. Peter, get up, kill and eat. Never, Lord, never will I betray you in that way. The sheep went back up. The third time it comes down, God says, get up, kill and eat. What I have declared clean, don't declare unclean again. And Peter knew then, read the text, it was the Gentiles. God is saying he loves them. He died for them. That Christ came for them. And so in this moment, this guy Cornelius comes and he ministers the gospel to Cornelius. He shares in his baptisms. He has seen the fruit of the work in their lives. And yet somehow, over those 14 years, somehow with life 
together with other Christians, they began to make up extra rules. I want you to look back with me real quick. Verse 9 of Galatians chapter 2 says this, James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars of the church. So when these folks come, they kind of came from the place that Peter you know, was before, where they were making up new rules for what it means to be a Christian. So when these guys show up, the hypocrisy comes out. So until then, actually, Peter is doing fine. And maybe you and I are too. I don't know if it ever happens to you. I see it sometimes in your life. You're, you're hanging out with folks and you're having a good time. You're being you. Praise God. That's so good. And then someone else shows up from church. Or someone else shows up from family Bible. Someone else comes into your, and all of a sudden you start going like, oh, I'm not sure I'm comfortable anymore with what's going on here. I start to kind of back up a little bit from the situation. That is the beginning of hypocrisy in our lives. And I want to say today, the text is going to teach us, it cannot be tolerated. We can't stand for it. It can't happen among us. Because it is one of the worst, most evil, destructive sins in our lives. So here this is, this hypocrisy is doctrine not equal to behavior. I want to pack it a little bit and we're going to move on here. But doctrine is kind of a church word and I apologize for that. But it means anything that you teach that you believe, anything that you claim. And so even if you're not a Christian, you have doctrine in your life. There's something, that's why hypocrisy is an equal opportunity destroyer. Because hypocrisy can destroy people of the world as much as it can destroy people in the church. The only issue is it's more tragedy in the church because we have the gospel of Jesus, which opposes hypocrisy. So it's anytime you, you claim to believe something, but you live differently, you behave differently. And too many of us, too many times, are caught right there in that spot in our lives. We're caught right there, not living out what we believe, and we see it. And sadly, sadly, only people outside of the church are willing to step up and call us out on it. It takes someone from outside the circle to say, you guys are hypocrites. I saw you last Friday. I know you. I'm not saying don't behave that way. I'm saying own it. Live there. Be real. The second thing is this, by hypocrisy. Hypocrisy means your core convictions are situationally based. It means you self-edit around certain groups. It means you change the way you behave at certain times. I'll tell you a, a real easy example of this is Thanksgiving. Because many of us went to Thanksgiving when we were kids. You behave differently at Thanksgiving with your family than when you do when you're out with your friends later. You know? You self-center. You, you just choose to do something that's not really who you are. That's actually hypocrisy as well. It means the things that you say you believe, the very core of your being, are based on situations you find yourselves in. Let's look at the text here in verse 12. It says, before certain men came from James, right? Before that time, Peter is fine. But when James shows up, when he sends these guys, I should say, in to, to hang out with him, Peter begins to change his tune. Peter the hypocrite begins to change his tune before the Gentiles. It's the same thing that happens whenever we're hanging out and a real Christian shows up, you know, somebody who knows something about us. And then we begin to get convicted about it. We begin to behave differently. And we call it that. We call it conviction. Well, um, you're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Well, sometimes, and sometimes we're putting false rules on one another that are not biblical, they're not God-honoring, and they actually thwart the gospel work amongst us. 
Our call is the same as Paul's call then to share the gospel with those who don't yet know Christ. The third thing is this. Hypocrisy is related to two things, liberty and freedom. See, before they showed up, Peter's eating with them. I mean, everything is good. I'm not saying they were tolerating it. I'm not saying Peter's like, well, you know, for the sake of the gospel, I'll eat with you. That was the gospel. And Peter knew it. This is the common table that everyone is welcome to sit down and eat if they know Christ as Savior. And Peter knew it. And the minute these other guys show up, he begins to back away from the freedom he has in Christ towards rules they've made up. Now, there are times we're doing things we ought not to be doing. Period. But it shouldn't matter when a friend from church shows up or not. It shouldn't matter when another Christian shows up or not. It shouldn't take a non-believer to look at our lives and say, you don't even believe what you say you believe. It shouldn't get that far. As Christians, we have certain authority and responsibility in life, but the responsibility is to be holistic, to be complete in him, to be people of integrity, not hypocrisy. And so today I want to encourage you, any hypocrisy, remove it from your life. Too many of us say, um, well, if, if I did, you wouldn't love me anymore. That's a lie. I would still love you. God would still love you. And maybe if we live in that place of authenticity with each other, we can actually begin to be healed, to be transformed in this thing called church. Transformed by each other's presence. Look at verse 13 with me. The next thing is this. Hypocrisy, here's the real issue too. Hypocrisy leads others astray. Verse 13. The other Jews then joined Peter in his hypocrisy. You know, you can get a lot of followers by being a hypocrite. It can happen, but we don't want to be there. That's not where Christ is. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. Look at what Paul writes, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas is this longtime person that went around with Paul, saw the work of the Gentiles, in the Gentiles, and even he was led astray by these others. Who, who, it began this movement. Let's just, I don't know if I should be around that. And then someone else says, yeah, we shouldn't be. And then you get some people who agree with you. Yeah, let's not be like those people. Man, those people are crazy. And you get further and further from the place where the gospel is most powerfully working and the gospel is most available. And you lose it. We lose it. This is the place that Paul comes into. This is what he sees in Antioch. Not only is Peter being led astray by the hypocrisy in Jerusalem, not only is that happening, but he's leading other people astray even in Antioch now. People begin to separate themselves from the unclean. People begin to place new rules. You know one thing I heard somebody say recently? They said, you know the old rule though, fake it till you make it. Right? I mean that's one way to say hypocrisy is pretending. Someone said, well, just fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it, right? Culture says that. Fake it till you make it. Guess what? That's a lie. You don't fake it till you make it. You're real. That's what we do. We live where we are. And we let God transform us into new creatures. 
We begin to live a life in the Spirit, trusting Him with everything, this gospel-centered life. The problem is, if we all fake it, nobody makes it. You know, if you fake it till you make it, I fake it till you make it, we're all fake, and nobody's making it. Nobody's making it. But if I dare to be authentic, and if you dare to be authentic, in that place of genuineness, we can cling to Christ. We can know that whatever doubts lay ahead, God has called us into it. And he can work amongst us. Two more things I want to show you. This is one of them. Hypocrisy is rooted in misplaced fear, right? Before certain men came in verse 12, he used to eat with Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because why? He was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision. You know, this is one of, another one of the biggest problems we have is we're more afraid of each other. We are more afraid of what you think of me because we both claim Christ than they'll be able to be who we are. But there's an implied fear you should have in this text. Peter had slipped to this place where he was more afraid of men than he was afraid of God. He had met this living God. He had seen him work. He had heard the gospel. He had owned it. He had seen Jesus die for it. He had seen Jesus raised because of it. And yet even Peter begins to be fearful of men more than fearing God. Hypocrisy roots itself in that, in misplaced fear. We, we begin to stop believing that we're created by God. We believe we're created by each other. We, we believe that somehow I make myself and you make yourself. And if you think of me as true, then that is true. But it's not. The gospel says what? He calls the things that are not as though they were. This is his work in our lives. I think one of the greatest illustrations of, of where this is found right now, because you can say these words and they will mean so much. If you want to say something to someone that shows you love them, when they reveal something to you that is really deep, that is really meaningful, and, and there's that moment where, where there's fear in them because they have trusted, they have taken the chance, they have risked it for you to be in a real relationship. You can say, I'm not going to vote you off the island. I'm not going to send you away. You know, this survivor mentality that many of us get from watching TV, this conniving, backbiting, fearful environment where someone's getting sent home today, who's it going to be? It's not, the, it's not biblical and it's not the gospel. I'm not going to vote you off the island. Just be real. We're here together. The last thing, is this. Hypocrisy is sin. That just means it's a failure. It's a shortcoming. And we should not apologize for not wanting to be hypocrites. You know the truth is that when someone accuses you of being a hypocrite, it's one of the most loaded opportunities to be transformed, to trust Christ enough that in that moment you can ask the question, why do you say that? Where do you see hypocrisy in my life? Because I don't want to be a hypocrite. Well, that's dangerous. You don't want to see out the people who don't believe. Why? Ask the question. Where do you see it? And then reflect. Don't be defensive about it. Reflect on it. In this place of hypocrisy being identified, we have an opportunity to continue to be transformed by the gospel. 
We should never be comfortable being hypocrites. And I think you know it, and I know it. Because when it happens, you're like, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. That's God's spirit in you saying, don't do it. Don't cheat. Don't come up short. Be real. And let me transform your life. Let me show you the way forward. We should never tolerate it. We should never make excuses for it. And as I alluded to earlier, we should be the first people confronting it amongst ourselves in the church. We should be the first people standing there saying, you're being a hypocrite right now. Because in that place, if we can hear it, one of the next steps this week, one of the next steps is to be able to speak truth and hear truth from one another. We have to get there. We have to get there. Because in that place, we can actually thwart the sin. You know, Paul coming. This text becomes about Paul, but we talked about Peter a lot, didn't we? And Peter and his hypocrisy. You know, Paul does a few things here. And the first is that in his conflict, his conflict, he did. He says, I opposed him to his face, right? In verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of everybody publicly, he said, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. He confronted him right there. And conflict exposes hypocrisy. This works whether we want it to or not. You know, sometimes when you get in a really bad fight with somebody, the truth finally comes out. And in that moment, you might need to lick some wounds, but you can say, praise God, we got to the truth. Because in that place, you can have peace. Not the cheap peace, but real peace. The second thing is this. Truth defeats hypocrisy. It doesn't take a lot because we know we're being hypocritical. The Spirit is convicting us already. And so if you call someone out on it, in that moment, that truth actually defeats hypocrisy. Look at what Paul says. He says, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. That's a statement of fact. Peter's been doing it for a long time. And that's right. That's good. That's the truth. And then he says, but you're requiring things of Gentiles that you're not even obeying yourself. That's hypocrisy. And the third is this. Jesus Christ died for hypocrisy. That's what the cross is all about. You know, being authentic. He was the real deal. He wouldn't cheat. He wouldn't shortcut. He wouldn't take an easy way out. He rebuked Peter on the way to the cross we talked about over the last few weeks. He rebuked Pilate on who has authority because he was going to the place where true healing is found. And it was through his blood, the sacrifice he paid for our sins, that true peace is found. That was a conflict. That was a war. And that was a fight. You know, the bottom line is this. When Peter, you can read this text and we say, oh, Paul, you're so proud. Paul, what are you doing? You know, the truth is that Paul believed that Peter is worth fighting for. Paul believed that the church in uh, Antioch was worth fighting for. He believed the church in Jerusalem was worth fighting for. He believed that those who didn't yet know Christ were worth fighting for. And so did Jesus. Read with me in verse 15. Paul goes on, he says this, We who are Jews by birth and not, quote, Gentile sinners, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because observing the law, no one is justified. That is the same truth we claim today. If you don't yet know Christ as your Savior, it's not following a bunch of rules. It's not making sure the people at Family Bible Church like you. It means believing in faith on Jesus Christ, believing in the sacrifice that he paid for our sins. That's what the cross is all about. And nothing else. That's the gospel we claim. And nothing else. The last is that Christ died for hypocrites. And if you're like we all do from time to time, in that place we can know that he died for it. He died so you don't have to pretend anymore. He died so you can be real. He died so you can risk it. That's the stuff that the kingdom is built on. So I have a couple of questions for you as we wrap up. And the first is this. Do you find yourself acting different around your Christian friends? And the second one is this. Is there anyone in your life that you trust enough to be real with, to be authentic with, even if it means they might confront you the places in your life need to change. Let's pray. Father, today we just give you praise and glory for your gospel, for the great truth that is in our lives. You know our hypocrisy. You know the places where, where we just are too afraid of each other to be real, too afraid to risk it. And we, we pray that by your Spirit's presence, it would be thwarted amongst your family. It be thwarted amongst those who are claiming you as Savior. That you would just continue to expose and reveal and let us do the hard work together of becoming more like you. We know in the cross it's done for us. And that's our first claim of this gospel. That no matter what comes, come what may, by faith we claim Christ and we claim salvation through him. And we know that you provided it. And we give you praise and glory now and forever in that place. And yet, too, too often we become constrained again by sin. We become fearful of things that we ought not be fearful of. And so today, Father God, I call, I just ask for your, your mercy and grace in those places that we could be authentic and real before you. You know, we say it here a lot, Father, that, that we, we can be who we are, but the most important person is before you today, Father. And so I pray as every heart's here before you today, that if there's ways that we're not being authentic before you, if there's ways that we're in self-denial, if we're being self-deceived, Father God, today, that you would reveal it in our hearts, that you would you would combat it. You would thwart it in our lives. And, and then we ask, Lord, that you would lead us to a, a fellow brother or sister in Christ who could love us through it, who could, who could talk us through it, who could journey with us through it, Lord, as we, as we seek to be more like you, more in your way. And may we never forget the gospel that you paid the ultimate price for. We give you praise and glory today. We thank you for the work you've done, the work you're doing. We claim it all for your glory. Just thank you. Thank you for everything in Christ. Amen.